Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you might receive all of the glory in the way that we think, in the way that we act, what we say, and in every way. May we show ourselves to be loved by you and to love those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I found a few occasions this week to um, be angry, and it's not really my jam uh, to be angry, and it's not always with cause. Uh, Sometimes I'm like a petulant child, and I get angry for no reason, like, you know, somebody, you know, ran out of mayonnaise or something silly and get upset about that kind of thing, and it could be that you have found reasons this week to have your anger stirred. Um, We had some construction projects at our house that caused me a great deal of frustration. And I found myself um, leaning towards anger. And there was a moment where I I talked to our um, our, um, uh, construction guy, uh, contractor, thank you. And um, he was like, you're pretty chill. He says, when, you know, do you ever get angry? And I was like, yeah. And uh, he goes, I can't really see that. And I was like, well, good, because I can. It's good. And, he, and I told him one time there was a moment um, where he, he was doing something and I felt pretty angry. And he goes, well, when was the last time you got angry? And I was like, well, right there. And he was like, that's angry? And I was like, I did pretty good then. That's pretty good. Because sometimes what I feel like is like um, Hulk smash. You know, I'll feel it happen, and, and I'm like, wow, I'm feeling angry, and I can feel it kind of like power up, and I know that there's a green vein that happens here, and I'm like, Rrr. but it doesn't happen all the time, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. But if you, if you look around our culture, there is a lot of anger, and there is a lot of uh, outward kind of responses to how people are feeling, and you can see it with um, politics, uh, people, people are getting angry. And they have been angry for some time. You can see it in the media. Um, You can see it every time you fill up with gas. Uh, People are angry. Uh, The housing costs. I mean, there's kind of this simmering thing that's happening in our culture. And the problem in our culture is that anger is easy. And it's acceptable. And sometimes people want you to be angry. Like, aren't you upset about this? You should join me in my rage about whatever the thing is. May be, and they provoke and prod us into action, and usually the kind of action they want, not the kind of action that we would prefer. But did you know, you may not know this, I'm going to be full of wisdom today, um, that anger is actually a secondary emotion. Do you know this? It happens so quickly that we move past our primary emotion to anger, just like that. But the actual primary emotions we feel first are hurt, frustration, fear, guilt, shame, humiliation, depression, or grief. And we skip past those things because they're harder to deal with. And we just go to anger. These things, such like these eternal, external emotions that we express are, are the things that people wind up dealing with. So 
somebody's angry and you can say like, hey, I see that you're angry. It's obvious. But you can't really see what's going on underneath. So dealing with a lot of hurting and frustrated and fearful and guilty and shame-filled, humiliated, depressed, and grief-filled people is not easy. And it's easy to miss that because so many people just appear to be angry. And it's up to us, I think, as Christians to see past this. But we have to see past it in our own lives first. We have to be able to see past the thing that's happening on the surface. What's going on underneath? What am I actually feeling, thinking? But we also have to be able to do this in the lives of those around us. So when we see anger, there's something more there. There's something more there. We have to choose to see past what we're seeing in terms of anger. We can't just say, oh, it's one of those people and they're angry all the time, so we just dismiss them. And this is exactly what Paul does in Athens. He walks into a foreign country and the capital of that foreign country. But it's not just any country, it's Greece and Athens. And it's the center of all great thought and philosophy of the first century. And he's walking around because he's been asked to wait there and he's observing the culture. And when he does, his spirit is provoked. That's what the text says, okay? And, and I don't like, okay, so I studied Greek, big deal. And so I looked up some Greek words, big deal. I don't want to be the one that says, well, in the Greek, by the way. But I was wondering, like, what does this, what does this mean? Your spirit is provoked. And it's, it's not anger, but it means you're, you're stirred up. Something is going on because it says, while he's waiting in Athens, he walks around, he sees the city is full of idols and his, his spirit is provoked, so he's, he's not angry and he's not flailing around and frothing at the mouth and tipping over idols and yelling at people. And he doesn't act out of fear. He's upset though. He's upset and he's, he's stirred up. And it has a connotation maybe of a, of a primary emotion, not, not just anger. Maybe he's hurt. He's hurt to see what the city looks like. And he feels frustrated that they're stuck in the ways that they're stuck. So he takes a different approach. He lets this provocation, this stirring up, cause him compassion. He lets the fact that idol worship is happening all around him point him and move his heart and mind to Christ and to long for the people that he sees to find a different way, the way that he has found. That's a huge important shift. So what does he do? The scriptures say he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So I want to try to pull this apart so you understand what's actually happening here. There are philosophers there, but they represent what the culture is in many respects. It's not just like, oh, he's talking to the high-minded people. It's what people believed during the day. They had a hand in shaping the culture, but it wasn't like they were in this 
ivory tower. The, the word stoic comes from the word stoa, which means marketplace. So stoics were the people who were found in the marketplace, i.e. among the people, and that's where they would talk about important things. So this is in part what everyday Athens folks believed. So stoics, what are they? Well, they love rationality and they love knowledge. And divine life in human comes from the word the logos, which is a dimension of our world in this weird way then God and the world are pretty much the same. So it's like they're pantheists, sort of. And for those of you who really like Greek philosophy, I know I'm slaughtering it. (laughs) But they're to be commended. Stoics should be commended. Because the way that they view God is is that God is imminent. He's very close because he's in all things in a way that we as Christians or even first century Jews would not say is true, but they have a sense of God's closeness and nearness. And there's Epicureans who held that there may be a God or that there may be many gods, but they didn't have anything to do with us. It's the absentee landlord kind of God. Well, they're to be commended as well because they have a sense of God's distance and otherness transcendence as as christians we have to hold transcendence god's otherness and imminence god's closeness together and so paul when he's addressing these people he's doing both in this really smallly small densely packed um, sermon that, that that luke records and it's quite likely that this is just a summary of what paul had to say because if you can imagine a Pharisee, a Jewish guy, a lawyer, getting the chance to share about Greek philosophy, he's not going to do it in a few sentences. It probably would have taken a long time. So, so Luke condenses this, and he, and he talks about how he's addressing both of these groups. And these people who are, who are high-minded, but they're in Athens, the center of all good culture and everything, are looking down on him. Where are you from? Jerusalem? Isn't that like a little town somewhere over there on the edge of the thing? Yeah. Okay, what are you saying? And they call him a babbler, which is actually, here's here's an insult for you when you are stirred up and you're angry and you want to insult somebody. Call them a seed picker. You're a dirty seed picker, which actually means that you are somebody who goes around and picks up the little things on the ground that other people throw away. That's what they think of Paul. You're talking about what? Where are you from? What are you doing? What are you saying? None of this is important. What is this guy saying? So they insult him. And Paul is still talking to Jews. He goes to the synagogues. He speaks to them wherever he goes. But the focus has switched because he shared the gospel in Jerusalem with, with the Jews and, and all of their leaders. And now he shared the gospel over and against like the, the economic and, and powerful Roman culture. And now he's in Greece. And he's taking head on all of their philosophies. And other people in this passage say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. 
We can't really tell what this guy is saying because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, when we hear that, we think, oh, that Jesus came from the dead. That's, that's what he means. But actually what they were struggling with is it sounds like Jesus is one God and resurrection is another God. Because Jesus was the masculine and resurrection, Anastasi, was feminine. And they had thought of things in, in kind of twos, where you'd have a masculine and a feminine, and that's all the way back to Egyptian mythology. But what's happening is, is they're saying, well, are you talking about two different people here, Paul? Or what, what are you talking about? And for us, it's like, well, what do you mean? How could you, how could you do that? But, but for them, that's what's happening. And they're truly confused about what Paul is trying to get across. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And Paul is going to do that for sure. The Areopagus is a place and a people. The place literally means Ares, god of war, and Pagus, which means hill. So this is for free. I'll tell you that Ares is the Greek god of war. But the Roman god of war is Mars. And Paul is speaking on Mars Hill, which is where the infamous church gets its name. So if you ever hear Mars Hill, you can remember I gave that to you for free. (laughs) So Paul, he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, the place and the people who are going to judge them. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he doesn't insult them. And we may read it like, you're very religious. Like he's being kind of dripping with sarcasm. But that's not what what he's doing. He... He compliments them, and he's super observant about them. He says, For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, now try to get it in your head. You go to a city where there's these huge monuments, and there's these huge areas of, of sacrifice, and there's idols, and there's statues, and there's all these things, and these people are constantly offering themselves to these gods. And they're so longing for this connection that they even have an altar to an unknown God to make sure that their bases are covered. Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I want to proclaim this to you. And I want to show you kind of the tit for tat that Paul does. So when they're talking about him as a a babbler and a person who collects seeds, he actually shows himself to be really, really bright in how he addresses this. So he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he made the world, he isn't the world, being Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of all things, does not live in a temple made by man. He doesn't live in a man-made place. You, you get what he's doing. He's talking about the culture and how they worship nor is he served by human hands. He doesn't require servants and sacrifices in the way that you guys do. As though he needed anything, he has no need of us. 
since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything, we actually need him. And the Greeks had an idea that many of their gods were in desperate need of human devotion. And Paul's going, no. This different God, this one that you think is unknown, I'm going to tell you about him. He says that man is made to seek and grope for him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. As some of you believe, Epicureans, he's right here. Even some of your people know this and have said it. They've even said that we are his offspring. So get this, and you may not have thought of it this way, but if we're his offspring, you didn't, you didn't come from a statue, did you? You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't come from a stone. Nobody, stone didn't give birth to you. We weren't born from an idol, were we? Even your own people say that. So we are his offspring, but not that offspring, a different offspring. Something new has happened. They're longing for something new. They want to hear something new. They want to know what's going on. And Paul is saying something has happened A new event has taken place and it's changed everything. And this isn't just an idea or a philosophy. Something has occurred. A historical event has happened. And Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Turn away from your idols. Turn away. Turn away from your philosophies. Turn away from your ideas that God doesn't care or that he's a long way off or turn away from your endless sacrifices and your hopelessness. God has done something on your behalf. This God who is so other than and also imminent has operated on your behalf. This God whom you say is unknown is known and he's moved and he's done something. So walk away from your fear and your guilt, maybe even your anger. He's going to make all things right and he's already begun making all things right because he raised Jesus from the dead. That's, that's where they go, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, they thought that Apollos had said, the sun god had said, um, there is no resurrection, so wait, wait, wait. What? God resurrected somebody? Wait, wait, wait. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear about this again from you. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the area of Copley, and the woman named Damaris and others with him. This address that Paul gives is literally a blueprint for you and for me about how to engage our culture. It's a way forward in a land with a people who worship other things and believe in other gods. And in case you didn't notice, the United States is full of other gods. And full of people who believe other things. Sometimes I do feel like a foreigner and a stranger here. I mean, I get it. 
I know the language. I dress like the people, kind of act like them. But it's also like, what's happening around me? This is a foreign land in many respects. So if it is a blueprint, I want to look at a few points that we can draw from what Paul did. The first thing is that Paul didn't get angry. I think one of the greatest tools of the devil is for Christians to get angry. We aren't attracted to angry people. We, we actually stay away from people who are angry. And when Christians are angry, it gives people an image of who we are that's not consistent with Christ. If you're, if you're angry, you've already lost your ability to quote-unquote reason with people. The, the ancients actually believed that anger was temporary madness. Anybody ever been temporarily mad? It's pretty hard to be reasonable when you're angry. If our culture and our politicians and our government and our greed and our use of force make you angry, and you and I need to take a step back. It's, it's not about justification for anger. It's about how we're feeling and thinking. Let it provoke us, yes. Paul walks in, the city's full of idols, he's greatly distressed. He's not angry, he's distressed. Actually, the word here used is the same one that's used in Hebrews when it says, let us provoke one another toward love and good deeds. Let us encourage one another, let us provoke, let us cause this to act with love and good deeds. So Paul's provocation can't be anger. Otherwise, that would be weird use of the word. So let us not be angry. Not because there aren't incredible ills in the world, but because God's great disposition to this world is love. And Christ teaches us to love even our enemies. So anger isn't the answer, but being provoked is a good thing. And the word here means, like, just get stirred up about it. But let it cause you compassion. Because there are a lot of hurting and fear-filled, guilt-ridden, shame-filled people in this world. So we can allow the primary emotion of hurt and disappointment to guide us. And Jesus says, well, maybe if you're afraid, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you, do you think that our culture could cause Christians to be heavy laden? You better believe it. So come to me, he says. And every time there's a reason to feel fear in the scriptures, what does Jesus say? It's always really helpful. <laughs> I always get frustrated when I read it. Fear not. Okay. Thanks, I'm drowning. What am I supposed to do? But there's a reason that he does that. Because he's present. God has done something new. He's acted on our behalf. And it actually means something. And it means something here and now. Number two, Paul builds bridges. He saw what was going on. People worshipped idols. They had an unknown God that they were worshipping. And what does Paul do? He compliments them. 
He says, you guys are really religious. And when I look out at our culture, I can say things like, I see that you really care for these people. I see that you're really upset about this thing. That makes sense. I see why you would think that way. I don't have to say, you're an idiot. I don't like you, and I don't agree with you. He builds bridges instead of insulting them. He observes their city. He notices what's going on around them. He can even quote their poets. How many times have you read or, or entered into the world of somebody that you actually really believe is your enemy? Have you read what they read? Have you listened to who they've listened to? Have you spent time in their shoes? What does that look like? Well, Paul has done this in Athens. We can do this as a way of saying, I want to know better what it's like to be you. There are any number of hot button cultural things happening right now. Why not sit with people and listen and build bridges instead of walls? So Paul doesn't call them a bunch of pagans and tell them that their city just sucks. He makes careful observations, and so should we. And if we're to share the good news with anyone around us, we have to be with them. We can't expect them to come to us. We have to know their world. We can't expect them to know ours. And we have to see the similarities we have, not just the differences. We have to come from a place of compassion and observation. Honestly, it goes a long way toward people who are learning to hear about Christ. And I want to say this. I know I could, I could sit here and give you a number of examples of how our community is doing that. I'm so proud of us that way. So proud. Number three, Paul tells the truth about God. He says that God is real and that God is near and that God has done something in Jesus that changes everything. If you, if you think about what you say you believe, even in the creed that we're going to recite here in a minute, think about what you're saying. God raised somebody from the dead. He acted on our behalf and that someone has done something such as removed sin, defeated death, and hell, and Satan. If that's true, everything's different. And the Greek philosophers knew that. Wait, wait, wait. If you're talking resurrection, we're in a different category now. And Paul says, yeah. You want to hear something new? Listen to what God did. So God has come to us we don't have to go to him with goats and pigeons and things. We're his offspring. We're similar to him. He isn't our statue or our idol. And the time of unknowing is over. The time of unknowing is over. The time of knowing is here. And I know many of you have questions about your faith and what it means to follow Jesus. I am telling you that you know enough to trust him. You already know enough 
to walk with him. Number four, Paul leaves the results to God. Some people mocked him. Guess what? It's going to happen. You believe in a resurrected guy? What? What are you, a seed picker? Yeah, I guess so. Some were curious, and some actually believed, and their lives were changed forever. Our job isn't to convert people, believe it or not. Our job is to share the love of God and Jesus Christ with people. That's the good news. The good news is that God has acted on our behalf to blot our sin out, to welcome us into his life as his people by his Holy Spirit. If that's not good news, people, I don't know what is. Our job is to share the story and our story with those around us because the world desperately needs to hear it. They're fearful and they're shameful and they're guilt-ridden and they're angry and all of those things. We are God's plan for them. But we can't control the outcome and we can't decide what God is going to do. But we can decide what we will do. We've got to go love people with all we have. So yes, our world is angry. And yes, sometimes that's us. And yes, people are far from God. And yes, political systems are rife with problems. And yes, our country engages in shameful behavior from time to time. Paul's world was no different. You could say the same thing about Rome. Probably more so. People need us to live lives that look different than the world, not consumed with anger. When we aren't consumed with the same rage they are, they wonder why. Why aren't you, why aren't you upset about this? Because my hope lies somewhere else, frankly. And I want to share that hope with you. But if you find yourself to be angry... Ask yourself what your hope is in. When you see an angry person, know something else is happening. Let your heart become provoked for them. When you run into people you don't like or you're unsure of, build a bridge instead of a wall. Build a bridge instead of a wall. Find common ground in your mind and in your heart and with what you do, and finally share the hope that you have. Share the hope that you have. Even in the midst of difficulty, share the hope that you have. Because they need to know that things aren't hopeless and that there is a loving God who has actually acted on their behalf as well. Amen? Amen. Amen.